we are carrying on in our journey through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, we'll see if we can finish chapter 3 uh, this morning. Let's just uh, bow heart, shall we, as we come to God's Word together. Well, Father, we do thank you for your Word again, Lord. It's living, it's powerful. Uh, Father, sometimes we take that for granted, but your Word has the power to change us, to change the way we think, to change the way we see circumstances, Lord, to change the way we see ourselves. Uh, Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, stir our hearts. May we not leave here just as we've come in, but Lord, may we leave here with a, a greater desire to love you and to serve you, Lord, to be used of you. Uh, Father, we thank you for all that you have done in our midst and Lord, all you continue to do. Uh, but Lord, we want you to have complete freedom in our lives, Lord, in this fellowship, um, to work as you will uh, for your glory. And Lord, that we would see people saved. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we were looking at the role very much of the pastor, and um, we're going to move on in a short while to look at the role of deacons uh, within the church, and we'll explain and talk a little bit more about them, who they are, what they are, and qualifications and so on. Uh, But I thought it might be helpful just to review a couple of things about um, the role of a pastor. Before we do that, I wanted to just recap what we said last week about church government, uh, because all of this is what comes out from these chapters. Um, as I said last week, by the end of the first uh, century and into the, the second century, already every pretty much form of church government that we have today has started to spring up. So it's very difficult to say that there's one church, this form of church government that is absolutely correct and all the others are wrong. However, um, there are some things that we can look at now. Just to try and take some context, uh, with Calvary Chapel, the way we do things, we do differ from a lot of the mainline churches in the style of government that we have. Now, most denominational churches, they maintain either a congregational form of church government, we'll look at these in a moment, uh, a Presbyterian form or Episcopal form. Now, interestingly, those words that we have are very much drawn out of the things that we read in Timothy and Titus. The, the idea of having bishops, having overseers, the idea of the presbytery, a group of elders overseeing, and so on. So they're not unscriptural ideas, but sometimes they can lead to issues and problems, and we'll talk about that. Again, uh, those terms themselves, we, we can't just label everybody that uses those terms with the same brush. Uh, there are various styles of church government, and some you know, adopt a particular title that don't necessarily form even that, uh, follow even that particular form. So we've got a whole mishmash of things uh, going on. But the, the key forms of, of church government, congregational, it's where the congregation have a, um, a say or a, the oversight of the, the church. It kind of appeals very much to our sense of democracy. Uh, basically, the congregation as a whole make decisions by voting on matters of importance. Uh, and they appoint committees to run the daily operation of the church. And that's typically how those churches run. Now, I'm sure already you can start to see some issues that can occur there. The, the, the groups that would fall under that banner would be the Baptists, the Pentecostals, Brethren, uh, and a number of non-denominational churches also uh, are organized in that kind of way. With congregational, again, they vote on hiring a pastor, um, how they spend the money, and anything else really of importance to the life of the church. Um, now, as I said, it is a very democratic way of doing things, but it can end up causing the pastor to be directed by the sheep rather than leading them. It can end up in a situation where the pastor is told what he can and can't say, for example, the things he can and can't teach on. 
And even the, the direction of the church is no longer down to the pastor being led by God, but it's down to the congregation. Now, that's great if all the congregation are really switched on as you all are here this morning. Um, but in some churches, it may be that not everybody's switched on or everybody's in the right place spiritually to be making those kind of decisions. And so there's a danger that the pastor can just be reduced to a hiring, uh, and there's other issues that can uh, come in as a result. If you look at the Episcopal form of church government as well, uh, under that banner you've got the Anglicans, Catholics, Orthodox, Methodist churches, uh, and they, they will have this kind of style. Again, it comes from this, this word from, from bishop or overseer, which we looked at last week in the text. And the churches are controlled by a hierarchy which very often is outside the local church. So you have a bishop or something similar who often will be responsible for setting policy and uh, even doctrinal content of what's taught within those churches. And so somebody outside of your own congregation will kind of be guiding the vision and, and so on for the church. Now, once again, I'm sure you can see issues with that. It, it stops the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to minister and work through an individual congregation. And every individual congregation, I believe, should be allowed to be led of God directly and not be subject to somebody who maybe doesn't even attend or come to the church very regularly. So it leaves very little freedom for the local pastoral congregation to follow the Holy Spirit. And so the final uh, one of the, the big three, as it were, the Presbyterian form of church government, uh, typically, again, we find Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, they put the decisions of church policy in the hand of a select group of elders who are appointed in various different ways depending on the church. Uh, and this can work, and it can work very well in certain situations. But the elders themselves are over the pastor. So we once again have an issue where the pastor can be dictated to what, as to what he can say or not say, uh, and so on. And you end up with, with a, ch- a challenging situation where the one who biblically seems to be appointed to lead, and bear in mind that Ephesians 4 makes it very clear that the role of pastor is one that is given by God. Elders are appointed by man. Okay, and this is very clear from Scripture. So to have people that are appointed by man making decisions over somebody who's appointed by God, I'm sure you can see there's a challenge. So I'm not here to say this morning that all of these are wrong and so on because there's some good things and all of them and we can learn lessons from each other. But this is why with Calvary Chapel we have the particular style of church leadership we do. Now, with that said... We get on to something that's sometimes referred to as Moses pastors or so on. There's a group in America that has set themselves up seemingly to attack Calvary Chapel uh, because of this Moses style of church leadership. And now what they mean by that is that the pastor is at the top of this so-called pyramid making all the decisions and everybody in the church then has to do whatever the pastor says. Now, I'm sure you can appreciate you've been part of the congregation here long enough to realize that that's not what we do. It's not a, 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 a dictatorship. You know, and nor is it intended to be. Paul makes it very clear that the church is a body, that we all work together, that every part is important, and we all have different roles within that body. But the role of pastor is a role that clearly is appointed by God. So this whole idea leads to these allegations. That, you know, doesn't the Calvary Chapel form of church government leave the church vulnerable to be led astray. What happens if the pastor gets it wrong or, or leads the church down a particular route that's not biblical? You know, what happens if the pastor doesn't follow God's leading? Well, if you stop and think about it for a moment, it's really a very mute argument because exactly the same problem exists in all styles of church government. What happens if your group of elders don't follow God's leading? 
What happens if they happen to go down a particular route? And you, know, you may say, oh, but there's a group of people, so there's a chance. But you'll always end up with one or two people being dominant in any group of people. In a congregational form of government, that's great. But what happens if you have somebody, a wolf amongst the sheep? who is more vocal and tends to put other people down, so people are less willing to speak up, and that individual starts to dictate how things should be done. You see, you have the same problem in every form of church government. I'd rather be in a situation where God is the one who is appointed and will then look after and dictate and lead and guide. And if necessary, God would remove that particular pastor from that role. And we have seen, even with Calvary chapels around the world, there have been issues, there have been occasions when pastors have gone astray. Incredibly, on most of those occasions, the pastors themselves have stepped down. But there have been times when God has removed individuals. You see, God is able to look after his church. It is, after all, his church. And I would also point out that all these so-called detractors that talk about this Moses style of church government, and we've had people here that have complained about this, complained it was a dictatorship. The, the people that, that have complained about those things and complained about the Moses style of government you, you, you forget that Moses was appointed by God. It's actually a very biblical model to follow. And yes, it was under the old government, but it was still God, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't tend to work by a democratic process through Scripture. You see, and if you look, those that criticized Moses, God dealt with very swiftly and sternly. So, that's not to say that you can't challenge what a pastor says. We should all be accountable to each other. We should all be Bereans. We should all be going back to Scripture to see whether things that are taught are what the Bible says. And I praise God that we have an eldership here that have at times challenged me, and I love that. I'm grateful to God for that. You know, and that's the way it should be. We should be accountable to each other. But at the same time, we have to understand that God has placed an order. And, and Paul He's writing to Timothy, as we've seen already. First, he's saying how important doctrine is. He goes on to talk about prayer, how important prayer is. And then we've seen about this order within the church, how that, that men must submit to the government of the day, whether we like it or not, because the government has been placed there by God. The women are to submit to their own husbands. And he talks about the order within church services and so on. And we're starting now to look at these roles that God has ordained within the church. So, just a, a little introduction to this. Uh, and we mustn't forget, of course, what Peter says. This is the elders which are among you. Again, that's that, the word uh, presbytos. We, we get the idea of the, uh, uh, a number of leaders. But, you know, th- there's a number of churches, again, that Peter is writing to in this. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And notice the instruction that is given to these shepherds. Feed the flock of God. That's one of the primary functions of a shepherd. To feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not because you have to, but because you choose to, because God has stirred you. Not for filthy lucre, not because you're going to be made rich and so on, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples and samples to the flock. That's what a, a pastor should be. That we should be examples. And, and I hope that, that in some ways I can be an example to you, certainly in terms of 
the, the desire to want to share my faith. You know, I've always been uh, open and willing to talk to people, and I encourage you to do the same. And there's always that kind of, but I, I don't know what to say, and well, you never will. You'll never be in a situation where you have all the answers for every question that's going to come, and you're ready. Uh, that just doesn't happen. So just step out in faith. Yeah, we should be willing. And, and again, in terms of loving God's Word, I hope that, that you see that in me and that that overflows and you want to study God's Word. That's how we should be. And we're told that when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. It's a promise given to those shepherds, those pastors, those individuals who are leading and overseeing churches. So in one sense, a, a pastor is simply a, an under-shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. They're his sheep. They don't belong to the pastor in that sense. In fact, quite contrary, the pastor belongs to the sheep. You know, the sheep are not there to serve the pastor. The pastor is there to serve the sheep. I want to read to you um, something that was shared by David Guzik at one of the pastor's conferences uh, a little while ago. Uh, and it really struck me. and I thought it was quite helpful, quite instructive. Um, he was looking... Uh, on a, a website uh, about sheep ranching in New England in America uh, and looking at the qualities that the, the, the website was talking about the things and the qualities that a prospective shepherd should have and he said it was very insightful so under the qualities of a shepherd these are the things that were listed firstly he said labor is do you have the time to properly care for the sheep it's the first question that was there. You know, don't enter into this ministry, as it were, or to this profession, in this case, unless you've got the time to properly care for the sheep. And he says, sheep properly, or probably respond to care and attention more than any other farm animal. And he says, for the most part, the labor is not hard, but they require quality time and quality labor. It says, time, timeliness of sheep management tasks is very important. Also went on and said that on labor, it says, you must have time to do the jobs when required and not put them off. You must have time to observe the animals and recognize their needs. Now, this is just, just the world's system and sheep and, past, uh, and, and shepherds and so on, but you see how the model fits so well and what a pastor should be doing for the congregation. Under the qualities of a shepherd, the first thing was listed was attitude. And I thought this was very instructive. It said, what is your attitude towards sheep? Now again, this is somebody who's perspective, uh, potentially looking at a career in looking after sheep. And the first question is, you know, what is your attitude toward sheep? Do you like them? I thought that was quite interesting. Would you be willing willing to brave cold rains or uh, snowstorms, that's what she said today, um, to feed and care for them? Would you be willing to miss a, a ball game or social event to be sure the sheep were protected from marauding dogs or coyotes? You know, these are questions that are put to an earthly shepherd looking after real sheep, but how much more do they apply in a church environment? Do you enjoy late night checks in the lambing barn? If you do not have a positive attitude, do not read any further, this article said. But then went on to talk about the things to know about sheep. And I thought this was quite instructive also. Under lambing, it says, Do you know what to do with a newborn lamb? It's a good question. 
vaccination? Can you recognize the important diseases? Again, something a shepherd should be able to do. Do you have a vaccination schedule? And then this one, which is particularly challenging, ram care. Can you care for rams even during the non-breeding season? Under weaning, do you know about the weaning process? There's so many things that are applicable to church life, it's quite uncanny. Internal and external parasite control. This article says, every sheep has parasites. Can you set up an effective control program? Successful sheep production is primarily determined by what they eat. Interesting, isn't it, that, you know, in the natural world these things are there, but in the spiritual, how much more so? This is the three most important aspects of what they eat, what the sheep eat, are herbage mass is the first thing that was listed. That's the, uh, the quality of the material in the pasture. And basically, sheep need to get enough to eat. If they're to grow, if they're to be healthy. Digestibility i.e. the portion of feed an animal can actually use to satisfy its nutritional requirements. So in other words, sheep need food that they can digest. And the final one was this thing, uh, species composition, i.e. that the shepherd must take care that the sheep don't eat only what they want to eat, but also what they need. Any parent understands that kind of principle. Trying to get your children to eat greens and vegetables and so on. Well, it's the same with sheep. Sheep need to be fed things that they don't always necessarily want to eat, but they know that are good for them. Sheep need a rounded diet uh, and they can get st- so they don't get stuck in one place just eating the same thing, on and on. also says that sheep are ruminating animals. They chew their cud, which is necessary for digestion. I'm sure you're aware of that. Sheep, I believe, have five stomachs. Uh, and they chew, they swallow, they bring it up, they swallow it again and bring it down and so on. The sheep get their nutrition from chewing the same food over a few times. So don't ever complain if I teach the same thing a few times and go over old ground. It's to let it sink in. Another one I thought was very insightful is sheep must sweat in order to look good. I like this. I'm thinking of a, a congregation as well here. If they don't, their fleece won't stay in good condition. Sheep that don't sweat enough, look a mess. And I thought that really speaks very much of our labor, doesn't it? The work we do. You know, sheep or Christians that don't do a lot are not normally in a good state spiritually. Because if the Lord has really, or if God has shed abroad that love in our hearts, then we want to respond, do we not? We want to do things for him, whatever those things are. However little or much, we still want to respond in some way. And surely we want to do things for each other, for the body. And that brings us very nicely on to the the section we're going to be looking at in just a moment. I thought it was interesting, William Still, in a book that I've uh, got at home called The Work of the Pastor, a great book, a Scottish pastor written some few hundred years ago, said this, uh, the job of a shepherd is to feed God's people the word of God, to fatten them up, for the kill. Now, that may sound a little bit harsh, a little bit extreme, but the point is that we are all to be living sacrifices to God. And really one of the, the roles of the pastor is to, to fatten the congregation up to the place that they want to lay their lives down as a living sacrifice. 
There's a, a story once of a, a lady that went up to Spurgeon after a, a sermon he preached. And uh, this, this very sweet old lady went up to, to Spurgeon and she took him by the hand and she said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, she said, I need to have a word with you. She said, Your sermon, she said, it wounded me. And Spurgeon looked very seriously back at this lady and took her by the hand and said, Oh, my dear lady, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to wound you. I meant to kill you. <laughs> now, the point he was trying to make was that the things that we speak sometimes are not comfortable. And some of the things that we're going to share in a minute may not be necessarily comfortable. But we are to be living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2 make it very clear that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And Paul says there that it's our reasonable service. In fact, the word reasonable is logic, the same word as logical. It's a logical service. It makes sense that we give our bodies a living sacrifice to God. David Guzik said this, a true shepherd should be according to God's heart in the way they serve and lead God's people. That's a very clear and true statement. So let's go into the, the text and let's look at some of these things then that are required of those that minister and serve within the church in various different ways. Because we've seen now the role very much of the pastor. Now we're going to look at the role of deacons. Okay, so who are deacons? Well, really, it's anybody that serves in any capacity within the church, and typically in practical things. Okay, and there are spiritual elements this we'll talk about as well, but very much the practical work that needs to be done in order to facilitate a fellowship meeting together. This existed right in the early church and all the way through church history. But it's saying then that just as those qualifications and those things we've looked at already for a pastor, it says likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Now, the word deacon is translated diakonos. It simply means servant. But we are all servants. In one sense, this applies to every single one of us. This is how we should be. Grave, that word there, it's, uh, the idea is being worthy of respect, worth imitating. Isn't that good? That those that serve within a church, in whichever capacity, in any way, should be worth imitating. You know, the, the children in the, the congregation should be able to look at each one of us and see things that they want to imitate. That's how it should be. People that come in from the outside should see something different and see something that they want to imitate. That's how we should all be. So it's not double tongues, not given to gossip. You know, this gossip causes so many problems in so many churches. And typically people say things, you know, oh, just, just share with me, so I can pray with you. And then suddenly, before we've even gone to the Lord in prayer, those things are shared with two or three other people and suddenly it's twisted a little bit and, you know, it's one of the, it is less of a problem in a small congregation than it is in a large congregation. In a large congregation, it becomes even more of a problem. But we shouldn't be double-tongued. Okay? Not, not a sycophant. You shouldn't just say things that you think other people want to hear or, or the pastor wants to hear. We should, all should be forthright, very clear in what we mean. Jesus said that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. The statement about not giving too much wine. We talked to that about that last time in regards to pastors. It's the same for the congregation. There's no ban in the New Testament on drinking a glass of wine. 
But if you need to ask the question, how much, then you've totally missed the point. See, once again, go back to that first point, that we should be worth imitating. And do you want your children to grow up imitating your behavior if you're doing things that are not helpful? Paul says that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. In other words, Paul says there's some stuff that's okay, I could do it according to the law. I'm not bound by the law in that sense. I'm free to do it, but actually it's not going to be helpful. It's not going to help other people. And Paul also makes a big thing about doing things that will cause each other to stumble. We need to think very carefully about our actions. Not greedy or filthy lucre again, you know, not looking for financial reward or to better our position or standing or whatever else. People seem so intent in today's society to try and climb the ladder. You know, and there's that getting out of the swimming pool mentality I've spoken of before. You know, the only easiest ways of getting out of the swimming pool is to try and get somebody else nearby and put your hand on their head and push down on them and it gives you a little springboard. But it's not very kind. You know, and unfortunately in churches sometimes that mentality follows through that people will put other people down so that they get lifted up. You know, it happens in the world all the time. But it shouldn't happen in the church. And again, these things, I mean, we're talking about other churches, not, not here, of course. You get that. Verse 9 says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. This is what Paul is saying, directing to those that minister within a church, on whatever level. We'll talk about different things maybe in a moment. But Shemizah says this, a deacon who does not know the Bible is an obstacle to growth in a local assembly. That's quite a statement. Let me read that again. A deacon who does not know the Bible is an obstacle to growth in a local assembly. Now you might think this morning, well, well, I'm not a deacon. Do you serve in any way here? Even if you open the door for somebody in church, that's serving. You're a deacon. And he says here, a deacon who does not know the Bible is an obstacle to growth in a local assembly. We're going to talk about that a bit more in a moment. Now, in regard to people that are in these positions, simply a, a successful or popular businessman or a generous contributor doesn't necessarily mean he's qualified to serve as a deacon. You see, we don't have the same qualifications as the world has. Somebody that's good in the business world doesn't necessarily follow through that they're going to be good in church helping out. It, it may be that they have a set of skills that can be used within the church. But just because somebody's good in the world, in the world environment, doesn't necessarily follow through that they're going to be good in Christ's church. Paul and Apostle were both called deacons, as well as Paul obviously being an apostle. And clearly in some some senses Paul was like a shepherd as well. So there seems to be a term that's used quite broadly of those that serve within the church. Stephen, we'll talk about in a moment again, but was appointed to the office of a deacon simply to serve. What was he to do? To wait on tables. That's all Stephen did. But what a great example. Talk about role models. So we'll come back and we'll look at that portion of Max in a moment. Just to give us some ideas of what we're talking about here. So, of course, waiting on tables is the classic example we have from Scripture with Stephen. But putting the chairs out before the service or putting them away, that would qualify. Setting up the equipment in the hall or in the kitchen area or the crash area, 
You know, all of those things that we do, and they're packing it away after the services. You know, any of those things come under these headings, really. Serving tea and coffee. You know, buying all the things that we need to allow the Sunday mornings to function as we do. Setting up an overseeing crash and so on. and Giving others even a lift to the meeting or from the meeting. These are all things that are part of our service that make the meetings that we have function. Sunday school even could be put under this. Now, Sunday school is slightly different, and the other one here is also worship ministry, because there is, of course, a very clear spiritual element to those things, whereas the first things on that list are very much more of a practical nature. But we don't see Sunday school spoken of in Scripture. We don't see worship ministry spoken of in Scripture. So we have to try and understand you know, where these roles fit in because we don't have any clear scriptural guidance. I mean, the Bible speaks nothing about worship teams and music and so on in the New Testament. That, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have them. You've only got to read through the book of Psalms and see how good it is and how, uh, how, how much it pleases the Lord when we sing and when we praise his name. In fact, we're commanded to worship him. So there's nothing wrong with those things. And the idea of having a Sunday school, of course, is a brilliant and wonderful thing. It's great for our children. I'm sure many of us were blessed through Sunday schools as we grew up as well. But this is just some. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. But just to give you an idea that pretty much everything that we do here really falls under this heading. So these things we're looking at are applicable to us. Now this scripture, again, it says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. What actually does that mean? Well, we're holding on to something. What is it we're holding on to? It says, the mystery of the faith. What is the mystery of the faith? What is our faith? Well, really our faith is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and then rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That he is called that he's chosen us, he's appointed us, or even before the foundation of the world, that he's paid for our sin by his blood. All of those things would, in one sense, come under the mystery of the faith. It reminds us of our own position, of our own gratitude to him for what he's done. I think that's really the intent of this verse, to say, if you're going to serve in ministry you need to be reminded continually what Christ did for you. Why? Well, because otherwise you'll start looking at each other and you'll start noticing that that person over there doesn't do as much as that person over there. And Why, why does that person always seem to, to get away or leave early or whatever? And you, and you don't understand. I love what Oswald Chambers says. There's always one more fact about the other person of which you know nothing. And if you did know, it would change everything. We don't know everything about each other. But you know, we get a great example in Scripture with Martha and Mary. Where somebody was so busy serving. It wasn't in this context holding the mystery of faith. wasn't really aware of all that was being, being accomplished at that time for her by Jesus. And what does she notice? She just notices her sister's not doing anything and it winds her up. To the point then she'd been simmering for some time, no doubt, before she goes and says to Jesus, look, my sister just sat at your feet and, and I'm doing so many things. And Jesus says that she was coming with such a load of care. But, she pointed, but Jesus pointed out that Mary was doing a good thing by sitting at his feet and worshipping him. 
Now, let's get the context right. You know, before we serve, before we do any of these things, we need to be in a place where in our own lives we are worshipping. We've got to have that relationship with God. You know, bear in mind what we said a minute ago, that actually this desire to serve comes out of a relationship with God in the first place. It doesn't come out of a call to duty. It's not that somebody's asked you to do something. I've always said with this fellowship, if you don't want to do something, don't do it. God will raise up other people and give them the opportunity. You know, we have a privilege of working with each other and serving each other and helping each other. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. I never want anybody to do anything that they don't feel they want to do. And the only reason you should do it is because you want to do it for Jesus as a love gift. That's why we serve. You know, it, it's it's really just thinking of the account with David and his servants of his who went through to the well of Bethany and broke through and got in the water and they brought it back and he just pours it out on the ground. But that's in a sense that kind of attitude of heart, you know, we should just want to serve the Lord and because of our love for him and what he's done for us, we should want to do things for our fellow brothers and sisters. So this verse is so important, we should hold the mystery, we've got to hold on to that. If you lose sight of what it is that has been accomplished for you, you can easily become resentful in ministry when you start looking at other people because you may not see the whole picture. You you may not see how many hours in the week they spend on their knees praying for you. And we're told we should hold the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Not again just because we feel we ought to or we feel convicted, but a pure conscience. So it's clean, so it's willing that we're not being coerced into something we don't want to do here. Let's just go back to the comment that Chairman Minister made. For those who serve, how well do you know your Bible? Should we just take you through something here, just to encourage you? And this may be something we can look at at future either meetings here or Bible studies or whatever else. Because this is one of the mysteries here, holding the mystery of the faith. Now, Paul's going to mention a couple of these mysteries to Timothy. Now, there are different um, lists of these, um, but typically... Either 9 or 12 tends to be the, the list that you get given of these kingdom mysteries that are revealed in the New Testament. Or these idea, the idea is that the things that were once hidden that are now known. The mystery of the kingdom of God. A couple of scriptures, I'll let you we'll put this up on the website later. You can look at these scriptures and ask yourself, what do you think that is? I'm not going to go through them now. I want you to think about them. Because if we're to know scripture, if we're to understand these things, then it should apply to us. You know, the reason I originally started reading the Bible when I was young, when I was about 13, I got in, I got to drum in my first ever band, and I realized that we were going, as a Christian band, that we were going to go out, we were going to talk to people, and we were going to be singing about Jesus. And I thought, you know, I need to know what I believe. So at 13, I started reading the Bible, and I read it all the way through that year. Didn't understand all of it, didn't understand a lot of it, but I got bits. The next year I read it again, I started to understand a bit more. And then the third year, even more, and gradually I fell in love with this book. Because I realized I needed to understand, if I'm going to go out and talk to people about God, about what he's done for us, about salvation, I need to have some answers, not just to give other people, but for myself. Well, for you, if you're serving in ministry here, do you understand these things? The, The mystery of the kingdom of God, number one. The mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And there are two totally different things. Do we understand? We've talked about these before, but I'm more than happy we can sit down and we can review them again. 
It'd be helpful to do so, I'm sure. The mystery of the manifestation in the flesh, we're going to get to that in a moment. So we'll at least tick that one off hopefully this morning. The mystery of salvation by faith. That's the verse that we've just been looking at. Is one of the references to that, this mystery. Something that was once hidden but now has been revealed. Number five, the mystery of God's will, or the mystery of the will of God in Ephesians 1.9. In, in the sixth one, the mystery of Gentiles as fellow heirs. This is something that was hidden in the Old Testament. They didn't understand this. It was revealed in the New Testament. The mystery of the bride of Christ. We had a Bible study on that a few weeks ago. So hopefully those that are there are a bit more clued up as to what that is. The mystery of the Harpazza or the rapture. Again, we've talked a lot about that at Bible studies recently in different ways and times. And you know, again, I'm happy to, to explore this more. It's something that every Christian should understand and know the details of and why. Understand this isn't just a New Testament thing. It wasn't something that came on with, with John Darby, as many commentators will try and tell you, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Now, this is something that was believed and taught by the early church. This is something that was written about in the Old Testament. The mystery of iniquity. Touched on that briefly on Thursday evening at our Bible study. The mystery of the seven churches in Revelation 1.20. The mystery of Israel's blindness. And finally, mystery Babylon, this counterfeit spiritual kingdom that's ruled over the earth from the time of Babylon and will be judged we read about it in Revelation 17 and 18. So those typically are the mysteries that are, are given to us in the New Testament. Things that were once hidden, revealed to the church. And, and you know, you, you think that as Christians, with these, this precious insight that we're given in the New Testament, we'd want to know this stuff. This should be kind of like the, the foundational things that we should understand and we should learn. This is kind of the, the bedrock of our faith. So, I encourage you. Let's study these things together. Let's look at them. As I said, you know, loads of verses refer to, the, refer to the fact that this was kept secret. It's going to, Revelation 10 verse 7, lose the fact that the mysteries have finished, that everything that has been or is going to be revealed has been revealed. Of course, in eternity, there'll be many things the Lord will show us that we have no concept of understanding now, but these mysteries in regards to our faith have all been revealed. They're all there for us to understand and to know now. Okay, so let's just get back into these qualifications for the office of a deacon or someone that serves. Let these also first be proved. Now, there is an element here that we've got to be a little cautious that we don't just throw jobs at anybody. And typically, as a, a fellowship, we have a rule that before somebody gets involved in some sort of ministry within a church, we like them to be with us for about six months. Just we want to get to know somebody. We want to understand a little bit about their background. We want, they want them to understand us. They may decide after a few months they don't like it here and they want to move on. And the last thing you want to do is put something in somebody's um, uh, remit, give them the responsibility for it, and suddenly they're off because now you've got to find somebody else to do that and so on. So there's a practical element to it, but there's also a very important spiritual element here. And this is it. Let them first be proved. Uh, the idea is to see whether a thing is genuine or not. Uh, and metal is the, the type that's often uh, used in different uh, writings where this word is used. An untested Christian is an unprepared Christian, one commentary said. 
I like this as well. A pilot doesn't really know his own qualifications until after his first real forced landing. I guess there's something true in that. But we need to have that training. We need to be equipped and have everything we need to enter into ministry. And once again, as we said, if you enter into ministry without, first of all, having your relationship with the Lord right, without understanding the mystery of faith, understanding what God has done for you and why you are serving, well, then we're going to have issues. There's going to be problems down the line. So you don't just throw all the jobs out there and say, oh, can you do this, can you do this, can you do this? God will always provide everything that we need. In Matthew 25, verse 21, in that parable that Jesus gives, Thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. And that's typically the spiritual way. People that are faithful in a few things, God gives them more to do. Let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. I love that. I just think this encapsulates the whole thing. Let them use the office of a deacon. The the role of a deacon, the, the, the reason we have so many jobs, in a sense, that need to be done, are to create an opportunity for you to glorify the Lord. Okay? So you use the office as a means to an end. So let me just give you an example. If one of the things you do here, and I'm not picking on anybody, if one of the things you do is put out the chairs, the reason you put out the chairs is not just so we have chairs put out. You use it because it's an opportunity to glorify God. If you... Teas and coffees, crash, whatever else we, we put on this list. Whatever we do is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. The reason you do it is because it gives you an opportunity to glorify God. It gives you an opportunity to minister to people, to talk to people, to share with people. One of the things I've loved doing with the, the books, all the things we've done when we've gone to various Calvary Chapel meetings and down at Creation Fest, it was a means to an end. You know, I didn't want to really spend my entire, you know, week off work selling books. But the conversations that we had when people came up to the store, and people testify, Leon would testify to this. You know, it was fantastic. People would come and we'd get to talk about all sorts of different things. You know, we've got witnesses to JWs and to atheists and to all sorts of different people that were turning up and asking questions and wanting to know more. And, and even Christians that were, were searching, and some, some baby Christians that had just come to the Lord and wanting encouragement. Oh, it was a wonderful privilege. The books were just a means to an end. And that's really what being a deacon is all about in a church, serving. Once you've been proven, once you've got an opportunity to serve in a particular way, it's a means to an end. You know, if it's sending equipment up or packing away, it's a means to an end. It's not just to get the job done. It's so we can encourage each other. It's so we can talk to each other about the Lord. Again, season in Acts 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. This is the seven that were chosen, and the word of God increased. And bear in mind, these were appointed to wait on tables. But what happened? The word of God increased. And the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So don't for a moment think that being a deacon or serving in one menial capacity within the church limits you. Because Stephen is given the job of waiting on tables. And as a result of him using this as a means to an end, how many miracles were done by his hand? How many people did Stephen get to go up to and just 
offer them food and see that they're not smiling and ask them, are you okay? And they get to share something. And Stephen gets to witness to them and share the gospel more fully with them or to heal them or to pray with them, whatever. We don't have all the the text written down of what Stephen did. We just have a couple of comments about the results. We see our ministry to each other. Ultimately, it's for the glory of God, but it can bring such great fruit and great results. Joseph spent 13 years in Egypt before becoming a prime minister there. He sometimes will wait a while before the Lord opens up bigger opportunities for us. Moses, again, cared for sheep for 40 years, really got to understand what sheep need before he was put in that position as effectively being their pastor. Joshua also sat under Moses learning for many, many years before becoming his successor. David again tended sheep. You know, in all of these examples, you see people waiting and learning gradually until the Lord reveals more fully what he wants them to do. He says, let these also first be proved and let them use, use the office of a deacon, as you said, being found blameless. That idea, again, is something that can't be called into account. Unreprovable, unaccused is the idea. From First Peter 3.16, have a, have a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or lifestyle in Christ. You know, we're told in First Thessalonians 5.22 that we should abstain from all appearance of evil. As we said earlier, things that may be okay, but they may not be helpful. Notice also, even so must their wives be grave. Now, specifically implies that this job of a deacon, specifically, scripturally, is the role for a man. But of course, it doesn't stop us being involved with a male or female in serving. But particularly the, the type of things that are listed here, so that the, even so their wives uh, must be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. You know, and we've got to be real that we can cause so many problems for our spouse by our attitudes. You know, and I have witnessed it in certain churches through the years where you have somebody who is so intent on serving God and their spouse is such a miserable, grumpy person. They just put people off the Lord. I'm sure you've experienced that. You've seen that. It's an issue. We need to be aware of those things. We need to be conscious of that. You know, chase... Wife is a vital requirement for successful ministry as given to us in the New Testament. Not slanderers. You know, that title actually in the Greek is Diabolos. It's one of the titles given to Satan. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And that word degree it's a military term, it's a rank, it's kind of a position, rum and a ladder idea. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased themselves a good standing, great boldness. Again, elders were called out of their own local congregations. They weren't imported from other places. And this is something that we see a lot going on today. People move from place to place. Even I moved here from another place. Having said that, for some, I don't know how many, six years or so before coming here as pastor, I was in many ways a part of this congregation. And Ron, our previous pastor, was very much a mentor to me. But ideally, you want people to be growing up from within the congregation. Paul says, These things I write unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Again, the, the house of the household. Again, we've been born into God's family. This is his house. And we are living stones being fitted together. The idea of pillars here would be very familiar in Ephesus. They had the great temple of Diana, had 127 pillars, and each one of them had been a gift from another king. And we're told that we are to be like that. We're to be pillars. In a sense, we are all gifts to each other from our king. I think there's an intentional play on that idea here. Uh, and the idea of uh, the pillar and ground or wall, a bulwark. Um, the church is to protect truth and make sure it doesn't fall, and we're all responsible for that. Again, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, it was referred to the political assemblies in that time in Greek cities uh, as where business is transacted and so on. But it simply means those that are called out, that's us, we've been called out. Again, the church has to be fed, as we've already said, on the word of God. The church doesn't grow by addition. We've been praying that the Lord would add to our number and we continue to pray that. But a church grows by nutrition. And then we're told, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And if time permitted, I'd love to take you through this. We've run out of time, I think. So maybe we'll look at this at our next Bible study. It's be a great topic to pick up with and run with there. Uh, again, we'll try and stream it for those that can't get there. Um, but this is, again, one of those mysteries, the mystery of godliness. Please uh, look at this, read it, go look at some commentaries yourself, uh, see if you can see what others have said, and then we'll come together, we'll share, and we'll talk about this particular verse and try and see if we can get a real handle on what this mystery of godliness is all about and how it applies and how it should affect us. Okay, let's end there. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you once again for the church that you have built and are continuing to build. Lord, we thank you, uh, Lord, for each other. We thank you that you have given us to each other as gifts to help and encourage and enable each other. Help us, Lord, to have the right attitude towards serving each other. Lord, help us to see it as an opportunity to glorify you, to thank you for your priceless gift to us. We just thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Impress these things upon our hearts, we pray, that we would grow together in knowledge and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.